Hello and welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology and the sociology of science. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Malcolm Harris about the tightly interwoven histories of eugenics and capitalism as it emerges in California throughout the 19th and 20th century, as well as how this history shapes tech and politics today. Malcolm Harris is an American journalist, critic and editor. He is the author of three books, the most recent of which is titled Paolo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism and the World. In this conversation, Malcolm details the long history of eugenics in California, tracing the connections between the colonization of the West Coast, American imperialism, anti-communism, and the world of tech in Silicon Valley. He also explains why it's important to consider these histories in building a decolonial, socialist, and ecologically viable future. Quickly, before we get into this conversation though, I'd just like to remind people of the event that was announced in the last episode. If you missed out on that, Red Medicine will be hosting an event at the Horse Hospital in London on May 25th. There will be readings by Amber Hussein, Matt Colhoun and Misha Fraser-Carroll on the topic of illness and what it offers us on the left to think about illness as a political, social and culturally significant experience. I think it's going to be a really nice evening and we're about midway through the ticket so if you do want to come make sure you use the link in the show notes and sign up. The cost of admission is on a sliding scale so you can pay anything from £0 to £15 depending on what you're able to afford. And with all that said, we now go on to the conversation with Malcolm. For this conversation, I think the best place to start would maybe be to ask you to introduce one of the main arguments of your book, which is that Palo Alto represents uh, a central hub or a node in the American capitalist system, um, as opposed to maybe some places on the East Coast that people might think hold that position. Um, What is it about Palo Alto that you're trying to argue in terms of its central role in American capitalism? Just as a kind of brief introduction, I know you can't answer that question in totality. No, no, uh... I'm going to make it much harder for myself by saying world capitalism, not even just American capitalism, right? So <laughs> yeah, now I got yeah. to do it even more difficult. Uh, but it's good It's good to start there, I think, because there's a lot of debate about where and when capitalism starts, Yeah. Um, whether it's in England or India or the Mediterranean and what century. And there's a lot of debate about when you can mark the beginning of the capitalist mode of production. Uh, but the globalization of the capitalist mode of production happens pretty clearly in the 19th century, mid 19th century, with the incorporation of California and then the Pacific Rim into the capitalist system that completes this Pacific hinge and establishes for the first time a true global mode of production. Uh, And at this point, California, as far as the capitalist world is concerned, is the farthest corner of the earth that No one's been able to colonize it very effectively. Uh, It's technically under the control of Spain and then Mexico, uh, but even their colonization is very thin, uh, mostly coastal. And the Russians look at it, the the British look at it, the Chinese look at it, you know, lots of people are looking at this territory, but no one's able to colonize it and bring it into a like colonial system effectively until the gold strike in the second half of the 19th century when Anglo-American capitalism really descends on California like a meteor. Uh, And Leland Standard, who is the founder of Palo Alto, is the sort of face of big capital in the West, which means he's like semi-petty capital that elevates himself through puffery into uh, big capital in the West. This is one of the ways that California really looks like just another 19th century overseas colony at the time is that it has this sort of 
local bourgeoisie that is puffing itself up into a national bourgeoisie, but are just like some random shopkeeper dudes. Uh, and that's really who Leland Stanford is until he and some friends bet on this railroad path and the Civil War breaks out and the Republican Party ends up being more important than it used to be and they end up really important. <clears throat> so standing for capital in the West, Leland Stanford is exposed to the class tensions of the 1870s where workers are showing up outside of his San Francisco mansion to yell at him uh, because of the decrease in wages that have been incurred because of his policies. And it's at that point that he takes his family and he moves to the suburbs, uh, but there are no suburbs at this point in the 1870s. So he has to invent a suburb uh, to move his family to. And that suburb that he invents as a sort of outlet for this class tension is Palo Alto. And so that's where Palo Alto starts and her story starts. And from this beginning, it's a, a capitalist place, right? And it's a technologically advanced capitalist place. And you can follow that line all the way through. Mm. Yeah, and you use a kind of decolonial lens where you open the book with it and then you also close the book with it. And it, it's something that you kind of use a lot as an analytical tool throughout. Could you talk a little bit more about the process of colonization that um, brings Palo Alto into the world with regard to the kind of expropriation of land from the uh, Ohlone people? Yeah, so the, the colonization of... California by the Anglo-Americans, uh, they like to blame the Spanish. Uh, California, like we, we grow up, we learn to blame the Spanish in California. And like, so Zorro is the most famous story of the Spanish period. And that's a rewritten story from the American period that's uh, set again during the Spanish period so as to declaim US responsibility for that story. Uh, but it was really set during the American period. And the way that the Anglo-Americans come to colonize this place is really capitalist root and branch. And that's sort of a new thing in the world is this capitalist practice of colonization and settler colonization, as opposed to previous forms of settler colonization, which might have involved capital, uh, but was not so purely capitalist as experienced in California. And part of that was the settlers joined what were in effect murder militias to go steal Indian land and were rewarded in exchange for that participation with land and are pledged that land by the state government. And then the state government convinces the federal government to pay for these expeditions. But so you have this real synthesis of grassroots vigilantism, Indian killing, which has been fundamental to the Anglo-American presence in the West since its beginning with a federal government's uh, like tacit approval, which is establishing itself during this time. And it's that synthesis between the like grassroots murder gangs and the federal government at the highest level that establishes California. And we've seen that synthesis uh, continue through its whole history. And when you say that it's a sort of specifically capitalist kind of colonization, are you referring to, I guess, what you would describe in the book as this process being one of turning everything into capital. So people have to become workers, um, the environment has to become infrastructure or mines and everything has to be kind of extracted from. Because I think if so, that's maybe something that might be kind of significant as we go on this conversation and maybe talk about how this inculcates a certain way of thinking about the body and health as well. Absolutely. And you look at the, the settlers, these Anglo-American settlers who are trading their you know, souls for land, right? Their participation in these murder gangs for land. And they're not looking at that land and thinking, I'm going to become a farmer on that land, right? I'm going to set up this sort of human uh, situation where I'm going to care for my family on that land. They were thinking about it as objects of financial speculation. So it's whether whether that's as a mining concern, whether that's as a timber concern, whether that's as uh, water rights, they were thinking about this land primarily from the beginning as a financial object. And that allows for a different kind of colonial uh, speed than other kinds would be, right? Because you're never satisfied. There's never enough. You can never get the homestead that you want. And there really is no human tradition in Anglo-American period of California, right? This is not a place of small farmers. 
And the agricultural industry from the beginning is capitalist and large scale. It's an industry, right? Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, one of the reasons why I was excited to talk to you is because I think there's a lot of stories in the book, but one of them is about how the, the kind of capitalism that emerges in Palo Alto at this time sets up a variety of different ways of thinking about the body and thinking about health and, and, and people's relationships to their body and to capital that just seems really present and is not like a historical object. It's, it's, it's a really immediate thing. And I think there's a couple of different ways we could get into that story, but a character you mentioned um, a few moments ago, Leyland Stanford, who um, travels to Palo Alto and is part of the, the gold rush. Um, could you kind of introduce him as a, as a character and, and, and why he's significant in the history of the region? Yeah, so he's this sort of uh, goofball loser who happens to come from a pretty uh, a pretty well-off family that happens to run a, a tavern near where the Erie Canal is being built. So there's a major waterway that's being constructed in the mid-19th century, and Leland Stanford, the Stanford family benefits, and the Stanford sons, a bunch of them end up in California around the 49 period, where they become... Uh, shopkeepers. They're selling stuff to the gold miners, which ends up being a much better business than gold mining itself for most people. And so Leland follows his brothers out to the coast after a number of unsuccessful ventures. And there he becomes a shopkeeper and quickly uh, elevates himself into a pretty important, as I said earlier, uh, capitalist figure because the there are so few capitalists on the ground, right? It's really thin, thin pickings. And so he becomes a, a leader of men, even though he's like kind of a goofball. And it's fact, this quality of being sort of a goofball and not being particularly hardworking or talented that leads him to become the front man for this group of businessmen called the associates, where because the other three are smarter and shrewder than him, they know to stand in the background and put him up in front at a time of class conflict and like government investigations into chicanery, into the kind of ways that they were making money off the railroad, which was, as everyone suspected, uh, corruption. Leland Stanford serves a term as governor of California, and he eventually serves a term as senator from California but very self-important, but then becomes not just self-important, but actually important uh, in society. Yeah, yeah. I know. So at what point does he start his horse farm? <clears throat> so the horse farm is in the 1870s, and he starts uh, outside Palo Alto, starts in San Francisco and Sacramento. But then he, in the 1870s, when he establishes Palo Alto as his own sort of refuge, he builds the biggest stock farm in the world uh, to train horses and produce horses out of this place. And so that's how Palo Alto starts as a farm for horses, a stock farm. And the system that he and his head trainer, Charles Marvin, come up with is called the Palo Alto system. And they took inspiration from the early childhood education movement, which was happening in Germany. So they saw the kindergartens. They were starting kindergartens in Germany. And they said, OK, we're going to build a horse kindergarten. And so before there were kindergartens for any children in the West, there was a kindergarten for racehorses. And so they built this kindergarten for racehorses, and their plan was to build uh, the facilities and the training practices to make horses run as fast as possible, as young as possible. And this was a new mode of training that shortened the production cycle for horses to prove how fast they were younger. And this was ill-advised in some ways because horses are not always ready to run that fast when they're young, and the consequences for injury for horses, uh, leg injuries, are lethal. And so they wasted a bunch of horses with this training method, but at the same time, they succeeded in establishing it as the way to produce the fastest, youngest horses in the world. And horses at the time in America were a very important object because they provided the engine power for agriculture, for transportation, um, for the military, uh, and horses dragged everything, right? And so for them to produce a more valuable horse was to improve Amer the American capital stock in a really important way. That was the plan. Yeah, yeah. And I was really struck when I was reading this bit of the book about your description of Leyland Stanford's description of the horses as productive biological machines that he could analyze for their output according to simple uh, metrics. Because uh, I feel like <laughs> that's such a kind of unsettling parallel with 
I, I guess kind of how it can feel just as a as a human person in various systems of capital that kind of develop out of of what happens in Palo Alto. Um, could you could you talk about the the kind of I guess the sort of field of knowledge that they produce by doing this. I mean, what are the, the with where the focus on the kind of metrics and the measurements and, and and competition, like like what what kind of philosophy emerges out of the horse farm? Yeah, so these are eugenic ideas, right? This is yeah. early horse breeders are at the really early vanguard of genetics, even though they're they're working with a lot of folk wisdom, uh, but they have a an understanding of genetic inheritance. And one of the people that when Leland Stanford is establishing Leland Stanford Junior University after the death of his son. So we're already talking about inheritance, right? One of the first people that he recruits to is the first president of the university, David Starr Jordan out of Indiana University, which is a very eugenic school. And David Starr Jordan really sets the path of the university in part, uh, maybe by killing Jane Lathrop Stanford. Uh, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that I discuss in the book that he kills Jane Lathrop Stanford to take over the university. But regardless of his culpability on that crime, he really does establish the school as a center for eugenics, not just on the West Coast, not just in America, but in the world. Mm -hmm. And David Starr Jordan is a world-class advocate of eugenics. And he recruits, especially from Indiana, a bunch of fellow eugenic thinkers, including Vernon Kellogg, who's a really important one, and Lewis Terman, who's gonna be crucial in setting the direction of Stanford. And he's the one who's gonna adapt the IQ test for use on everyone as the Stanford Binet IQ test, which happens at Stanford University, obviously, and is a direct outcome of this sort of eugenic thinking scholarship. So just to kind of go over it slightly and, and just kind of drill down into it, what do capitalists get from this kind of system, a eugenic system of, of training and measurement and, and treating either animals or, or workers in this way? Like what, what is the problem that this provides a solution to? Yeah, I think that's a great way to phrase the question because it really was a problem that they were trying to answer and specifically around World War One. And for Lewis Terman, I think it's, it's interesting that this becomes a personal problem. So for David Starr Jordan, He's really anti-war. He's so he's this guy's so racist that he's anti-imperialism, <laughs> anti-war, because like the fine Anglo-Saxon young men who we need to breed future generations are just as likely to get shot as anybody else. That like gunpowder changes the practice of war. And he has this phrase, he says, now a clown can shoot down the hero. So no longer do we have eugenic war where you've got, you know, your hero on horseback who proves that he's heroic by surviving the battle and killing other people. Now you've got a, a situation where any old guy can point a gun and shoot and kill your hero and destroy your genetic future. And so for him, this is a, a question of eugenics, of, of that war is dysgenic. And so he becomes very involved in the peace movement. And Vernon Kellogg, who's another one of these eugenicists at Stanford, during World War I becomes a liaison to the German high command. And he's an evolutionist. He's a, teaches the subject that he and David Starr Jordan invent called bionomics, which is basically like evolutionary psychology mixed with eugenics uh, in the early, early 20th century. Mm. And he goes there and talks to all these Germans who are thinking through some of the same ideas. And he comes back and is like, holy shit, these guys are really scary. Like, you know, we thought that these ideas, we can grow eugenically as a society by peaceful means, but these Germans are convinced that that means war and that they need to kill everyone uh, to prove that they're genetically superior. And so we need to get ready for war with Germany right. because they understand this stuff differently than we do. Yeah. And so when the U.S. enters World War I, Louis Terman, who's in, created this uh, IQ test, his son, Frederick Terman, who scores as a genius on his IQ test that he's doing, uh, turns 18 at the exact same time that the draft age gets lowered to 18. And so he has this real personal feeling, personal idea that like our best IQs, including my literal son, my genetic material, is going to get wasted in the trenches of Europe where 
you know, no, no amount of talent or skill can show itself to be valuable. Everyone gets shot. Doesn't matter. And so what he does is he institutes the first mass IQ testing on recruits to the war and separates them into five groupings based on their IQ score with the idea that people in the top grouping would be held back from combat, that their genes would be protected from the front. And that includes his son, Frederick, who spends the war at Stanford and then goes on in World War II with his electronics research and work on in the Rad Lab uh, in Cambridge plays a very important role in winning World War II. So this, this prophecy comes true. And so already in the earliest early 20th century, you have this idea of IQ and genes as not just a value to the society, but a military asset of America, a national military asset that needed to be enhanced uh, in order to protect the American place in the world. Mm. And I'm trying to think how to phrase this in the right way, but do you think the emergence of eugenicist thought in a way comes as a justification for the colonization that they've already done in a way i mean because it's rationalizing a whole like taxonomy of or hierarchy of uh, racial difference and white supremacy how and i was just struck then by you talking about that uh, them going to germany and kind of being slightly shocked at their violent kind of intentions with eugenic thought did they not feel that way about their own sort of legacy of colonization? Did they not associate their eugenic uh, sort of field of study with that project of colonization at the time? Well, Americans have long uh, denied their own role as colonizers, right? So we think of, and it was easy when I was looking back at this history to see California itself as an overseas colony for the United States at the beginning of the second half of the 19th century, but they didn't think about it that way, right? And they thought about North America as manifest destiny, right? Manifestly, as in manifest as an obvious, right? Obviously uh, already belonging to us. And someone like David Starr Jordan really opposed uh, the imperialism that resulted from the Spanish-American War. So he opposes the colonization of Puerto Rico and the Philippines because he thought it would drag the United States down by incorporating these non-white people into the polity. And so this is a guy who's he's so racist that he's an anti-imperialist, um, which is uh, pretty goofy, but also shows you how they understood their relationship to the indigenous people of the United States and that territory, even though at that time was not very long ago, right? Like the colonization, you can still touch that wall uh, with your hand. If you're talking about the early 20th century, that's like one people, people are still alive from that period. People have living memory. Uh, so there's a denial of the role of colonialism in the history of America that's implicit, certainly implicit in Americans judging European countries. But at the same time, the U.S. was not quite involved in the territorial scramble that the European powers were in the same way. And so you see Stanford, California-trained engineers like Herbert Hoover when they're out there working in the mine, the colonial mines of the early to 20th century, they're working for other European companies. They're working for British companies, they're working for Belgian companies. They're not working for American companies that are doing this exploiting because that was not America's role in the world at that point. Mm. Yeah, and, and perhaps as well, I mean, it might be worth here as well, just taking a moment to talk about the way in which Leyland Stanford opens um, Stanford University, you're already talking about some of the key figures in the early period there and how it becomes this hotbed of um, eugenic thought and, and, and sort of intellectual work more generally. Um, at, at what point is Stanford founded and, 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 and kind of what are the circumstances of its, um, of its founding? So Stanford is founded and then refounded at the end of the 19th century, early of the 20th century. Um, I mean, first you have the Stanford stock farm, which becomes after the death of Leland Stanford Jr., their child, uh, Stanford University. And the early plan for Stanford University was 
like a trade school that was attached to the biggest museum in the world. And they really did build the biggest museum in the world in Palo Alto. Uh, and this was Jane Lathrop Stanford's uh, plan for the area. And this was a memorial museum to her son. And it was like the Metropolitan Museum of Art on the West Coast was the idea. That was the original plan. Uh, Jane Lathrop Stanford is murdered uh, in the early 20th century, and the 1906 earthquake destroys the museum. And the historians uh, sort of talk about this, the 1906 earthquake as almost a divine judgment on the founding Stanford's plans for the university and an approval of the David Starr Jordan plan for the university, which is really the, sco the school that Stanford becomes is David Starr Jordan's plan with it at the cutting edge of technology and the production of uh, top engineers and struggling for prominence of the university in these areas and ways, um, which was not the original plan for the, the Stanfords. But that speaks to the, how these questions are being driven by impersonal forces, I think, more than just the personal intentions of any one figure because those personal intentions were very different. And yet we get this uh, very impersonal Stanford. Yeah, and it becomes this kind of, so many of the key figures are committed eugenicists and it becomes, I can't remember, I've got the quotes somewhere in my notes, but um, yeah, Stanford itself was a self-consciously eugenicist project. I mean, could you talk a bit about like, this is, I think maybe now it's easy to imagine it as a slightly fringe science, but there were figures at Stanford who thought it should be the foundation of all science and medical knowledge. And um, it, it was like, well, maybe a frontier of like the frontier of kind of scientific knowledge at that point. Um, could you talk a bit about how central it was, not just to some key figures, but just the whole project of the university? Yeah, this bionomics, which is this subject that David Starr Jordan and some of his fellow professors construct, is really the fundamental ideology of Palo Alto, which is holds this idea of natural hierarchy um, and how competition and evolution explain everything, every kind of interaction. And we hear we hear this exact same attitude again from evolutionary psychology types, who are pretty prominent in the Bay Area now, uh, <laughs> and. That ideology also switch, changes names all the time, uh, but I think still has these fundamental precepts. And I think some of those folks could learn a lot about their, their own beliefs by reading this book, because I don't think they know their own history very well about bionomics and the role that eugenics is playing at this school. Uh, but from the beginning, it, it, it was, like I said, a self-consciously eugenic program, which means that they were asking applicants, you know, how tall are you? into the 80s and it wasn't because they wanted a, a you know a student body with lots of different heights that's because they wanted tall people because they associated height with genetic fitness which as any scientist will tell you is incorrect uh you know very tall extremely tall people have all sorts of health problems uh but that's not how they understood it this is a real pseudo-scientific understanding and if you go through like the stanford daily archives you find, I found uh, articles from 1930 and then again in 1950 talking about we don't have enough huge beds because we recruited, you know, at a time when the average American man was five foot eight, they were recruiting too many men over six feet tall and they needed more seven foot beds. And that was intentional. Uh, and it still is if you walk around Stanford. I don't think they ask heights anymore. Uh, but I've been hearing, as I've been talking about this from Stanford students who are like, yeah, it's still like that. You find all these like six foot, especially women now walking around with uh, women's sports playing a more prominent role, that it's just like a disproportionate number of just extremely tall people. And you find the same thing as you go through the history of Silicon Valley, that a number of important figures tend to be for no reason that is uh, easily explicable, very, very tall. And it's because that fits into this uh, larger eugenic plan. It's not a coincidence. Yeah. And it's good to hear you talking about more kind of contemporary examples there, because I guess one of the things I'd like to draw in this conversation is this isn't a philosophy or a field of knowledge that just kind of dies off. Uh, you know, it, no. it continues to shape the development of 
Palo Alto, American capitalism and via imperialism, global capitalism throughout the 20th and 21st century. And at the risk of asking you to kind of summarize huge swathes of history, I mean, where, where do you see that genealogy from that period kind of how, how does it continue um, and shape the trajectory of both Stanford and American capitalism sort of throughout the 20th century? If that's not too much of a, a big question. No, no. Uh when I first started this project, I thought I was going to have to do a lot of more like symbolic connecting between the periods, you know, this yeah. looks like that, or that seems like this, or they were, you know, operating under the same historical conditions as that yeah. or whatever. But then if you look at someone like William Shockley Jr., yeah. you know, William Shockley Sr. is a mining engineer and a professor at Stanford of mining engineering, comes out of this earlier period. His mother, uh, studies mining engineering at Stanford University, meets his father as a mining engineer. It's their friendship with the Hoovers that gets him a job, uh, Bill Shockley Sr., at Stanford University, where Bill Shockley Jr. is grown up. When he's a child, he is subjected to the genius tests of uh, Lewis Terman that are part of this eugenic campaign and search from California, the, the turning of children and children's aptitudes into a state and national asset through this sort of IQ testing. And he's identified earlier. He's, he scores just sub-genius, which I think uh, is something that bugs him forever, because he then has a very successful career, wins a Nobel Prize for co-inventing the point contact transistor, and ultimately ends up founding Silicon Valley in Palo Alto with uh, Shockley Semiconductor. And throughout his whole career, he's obsessed with IQ, he's obsessed with uh, testing, he's obsessed, obsessed with hierarchy and establishing the veracity of natural hierarchies, and he's obsessed with race and the order of races. And so he becomes pretty quickly in this post-war period uh, one of the most prominent racists in the country and really reestablishes a discourse of eugenics around these new ideas of genetics that, again, he's not a geneticist, he's a physicist, uh, which is an important history because, uh, you know, David Starr Jordan also studied fish, not humans. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Paul, er Paul Ehrlich, another example, studied butterflies. He's the author of The Population Bomb, also at Stanford, also an important, like, eugenic-type thinker in this age. And so that goes straight to now, right? So Silicon Valley is found, founded by, the godfather of Silicon Valley is this guy, Bill Shockley Jr., who has deep roots within the eugenic project of Stanford. He's identified as a eugenic asset of the area as a child. Goes on to found this uh, industry in this location, really, and also uh, reestablishes out of Stanford University where he has an endowed chair this new frame for eugenics and racism. So directly connected, right? Not like, not metaphorically connected, not symbolically connected, but like directly Bill Shockley Sr., Bill Shockley Jr., right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm also there thinking about, like, maybe it's also important for me to ask you about one of the core reasons why Palo Alto and, and Stanford kind of explode in terms of the amount of money that's just going through that region is, because I think you dub it the kind of academic military industrial complex. In other words, it becomes a central cog in the machine of American imperialism and anti-communism around the world, which, I mean, essentially, if we tie it back into eugenics, and maybe we could think about it as a rejection of racial hierarchies and also a rejection of certain subjects around the world being simply seen as like human capital and actually fighting and struggling for autonomy. Could, could, like, could you just sketch out for people why, why Stanford ended up being, and Palo Alto ended up being um, like so closely interwoven with American imperialism and militarism and, and, and anti-communism? So the threat of the post-war era is the threat of equality. And this is really the threat of the 20th century outside of Nazism and maybe that Nazism is a, a reaction to is the threat of equality of all peoples. And this is a common idea at the time, certainly post-Bolshevik revolution, that soon uh, equality is on the march 
anti-colonial uprisings are happening. Uh, liberal ideas have penetrated the world along with the, the world system of capitalism and that there's no way to stop this slide down the hill of equality towards the full equality of all people. And this is a, a very common idea in the 40s, right, certainly. Uh, and even capitalists assume that this will be the case. You know, John Maynard Keynes assumes that by the, now, by the 2020s, the economic problem will be solved, uh, et cetera. And this tendency towards equality poses a real threat to the beneficiaries of inequality. And a lot of the beneficiaries of inequality live in America at this point in history, in this post-war period. And so Palo Alto is tasked with protecting that position of inequality in the world at a time where that seems very difficult and perhaps impossible, right? How do you avert the march of world history, which seems at that point pretty univocal, right? Pretty clear that it's tending toward equality. When a lot of people think about what is the signature product of Palo Alto and Silicon Valley in this post-war period, maybe they think the silicon chip, maybe they think the, the moon mission, maybe they think early personal computers, the mainframes, the internet, uh, the beginning of Silicon Valley, right? But when I've researched this history, I really came away from it thinking, that the nuclear missile is the obvious product of Palo Alto in this period, because the whole first generation of silicon chips that come out of Fairchild Semiconductor, which is the product of Shockley Semiconductor fails immediately because William Shockley uh, Jr. is the worst manager in the world. Uh, no one can stand to work for him. They all quit before they even build one silicon transistor. Uh, but the company that he sets up ends up being very successful under this name of Fairchild. But the whole first generation of chips that they make are subcontracted to IBM for use uh, in subcontracting to produce the Minuteman One nuclear missile. And the nuclear missile is this cocked gun pointed to the world's head that says, if anything happens to America, everyone dies. And that was what the whole economy was based on. It's producing these things. And you think, you know, these missiles are big uh, metal objects. That maybe are made in Southern California somewhere. But if you look at their composition by value, so much of it is the electronics inside the missile um, and those chips that are making those up and the testing instruments that are used to create the electronics that go into the missile. And those were all coming out of Palo Alto. So the nuclear missile is really a product of Palo Alto as much as it is anywhere else. And that, more than anything else, is what allows America to secure its place in the world. Hmm. Yeah, and so I guess what you're describing there is a relationship between the US military, the free market, and like knowledge production that kind of shapes now, I mean, so huge swathes of the technology that mediates our relationships and our relationships to each other and our relationships to work and all these things. Do you see like a, where can we see the continuation of that kind of war logic and the eugenic uh, eugenicist logic in the more recent um, associations people will have with Silicon Valley, aka the kind of tech boom and, and the computer age. Um, how, how do those forces um, contribute to something like that happening in Palo Alto as opposed to somewhere else? So one good example, you look at Hewlett and Packard, which I've been talking about as a the signature American company um, or signature Silicon Valley company that bridges the radio age, the post-war age and the, or the pre-war age and the post-war age um, and the Silicon age. So they start with vacuum tube transistors or triodes and move into the Silicon age by the, after the war. And David Packard himself is actually deputy secretary of defense for Nixon during Vietnam. And so again, these connections are direct, not uh, metaphorical or proximate, right? The intersection between Silicon Valley and the war state is at the really the highest levels. It doesn't go much higher than, you know, you can be secretary of defense and you can be president, but you're sort of third on that list, very close. Um, and he was in charge of procurement for the DOD and establishing so many of these relationships during the Vietnam War era, and so many of these microchips are in bond, are 
silicon chips are in bombs that are being dropped on Southeast Asia, um, which is an economic strategy in addition to a geopolitical strategy for the United States. And one consequences of that is a huge Vietnamese refugee population that ends up coming to California and coming to the Bay Area, where they're then hired by AP to build these tools. And so HP ends up with a Vietnamese workforce of 4,000 people in the post-war age, having bombed these people out of their homes and into Silicon Valley. And so it becomes this circuit with Asia where we're exporting bombs and importing workers. Uh, and that model gets America through the Cold War. America wins the Cold War as a, in no small part, thanks to these circuits, which are established, you know, in a number of countries, then also with counterinsurgency operations that are established using signals technology that is also coming out of the Bay Area, also coming from Hewlett and Packard. And so you see David Packard in the next period saying, you know, we want to sell, we want permission to sell our signals intercept technologies to dictatorships around the world and that computers can be used for lots of things and we can't be blamed for what they're used for. Uh, But ultimately what they are used for in a bunch of countries is securing capitalist interests uh, against the interests of the people who live there. And I guess you've also got these figures now that are sort of explicitly eugenic, like kind of Peter Thiel might be a good example. I mean, and he also represents that relationship between the state and and kind of military production like could, could you talk about him as a character and, and then maybe I'm kind of eyeing the time because I don't want to kind of run over but maybe um we could use him as a as a kind of illustration of where that arc ends up from kind of eugenicist Stanford to to where we are now and why it's not a coincidence that they hold so many of the same views about human life and 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 productivity yeah, Teal's a great example, and you know you can also look to to Teal's history. What who who is his father? Klaus Teal is a mining engineer <laughs> in Southern Africa, yeah. uh, at a uranium mine where they're trying to accumulate enough uranium to protect the South African apartheid regime. And so again, it's this march of equality, this the anti-colonial movement that is a threat to these people all around the world. And so Peter Thiel is pulled into the world of Silicon Valley before he ever moves to California um, because the whole world is caught up in these relations. Uh, But yeah, he absolutely is an inheritor of this kind of thought, which is inherited at Stanford. um, And he was obviously there in the 90s, becomes a real strong right-wing conservative at Stanford in the 90s eventually ascends to the board of overseers at the Hoover Institution, which is a, again, self-consciously anti-Marxist think tank, Citadel, located not just in Palo Alto, but it is a giant tower that towers over all of Palo Alto, is this Hoover Institution. And David Packard was a member of the board of overseers, as, is, as was Peter Thiel. And so institutions like that have maintained this through line um, but at the same time, I think if you ask Peter Thiel about bionomics, he probably wouldn't be able to tell you anything, right? Yeah. These people do, don't really know their history. They might know who David Starr Jordan is in a like general sense because they went to Stanford, but they don't know themselves as part of this history, uh, which is too, you know, too bad in some ways. I'm not sure it would make the, it wouldn't dispel the cause, right? I think they might be bad readers of this book insofar as they would say like, yeah, bionomics, I believe in that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's smart. Uh, That is true. We do have to protect America and like white people into the future. Mm. Um, But they could also learn a lot. Yeah. But, and so if they wouldn't necessarily recognize each other on, in the way that you're talking about, could you maybe explain like what, what is their shared fantasy? Like, what is the what is the continued political project that they share with regards to? I suppose going back to this image of the horse, you know, like as 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 workers as just biological machines. Like, what is their fantasy about what people are that they operate in in the huge amounts of agency they have in kind of shaping our world? Yeah, they really believe in the truth of natural hierarchy, 
And they have constantly sought ways to prove that the truth of natural hierarchy and demonstrate proof of natural hierarchy and find technologies that would allow them to maintain the fiction of natural hierarchies. And that's why Silicon Valley becomes so preoccupied with especially powerful things and with the idea of human enhancement. Uh, and that's where computers really get their start is at this, this idea of human augmentation and that like smarter people could be made more powerful. And the idea, the dream of creating humans who are more powerful than other humans and thereby improving humanity. And absolutely, you still see people who are obsessed with these ideas. And I think they've become more public about sharing their obsession with these ideas more recently, even since I wrote this book in you know, 2019, 2020. Uh, people are sort of masked off about uh, the kind of things they believe in this, these pseudo eugenic uh, cosmologies, because they really, they really do hold them. Then how do you see the challenge for the left? Like, because I guess we're, we're like on their terrain in many ways now, and we can't really get out of it without, well, I mean, we can't really get out of it immediately. So we have to kind of fight on this terrain. I mean, how, how, how do you, how do you think that the work in this book and, and the kind of understanding of, of Palo Alto's intellectual political history, how do you think it kind of provides people with tools to kind of think about, you know, how we actually can be successful as, as, a, as a popular movement on this terrain? Yeah, I think there are some good answers in here, I hope. Uh, one is that capital is intrinsically reliant on labor and that that relationship is always unstable. And so there's a fantasy, always a fantasy for capital, especially techno capital, that they can get to some uh, unfraught relationship with labor. Even, even the full automation of labor would be an example of that, right? That they can come to some, maybe it's uh, a high enough level of social surplus, maybe it's enough automation, maybe it's a universal ownership society, you know, whatever. They have a fantasy that the intrinsic tension between capital and labor can be solved. But what this history shows is it's constant and that you have you can't have this area be a capital for capital without it also being a capital for a labor struggle and a conflict between those two. And so whenever you've got ascendant capital, you've also got labor struggle. And so at every moment of Palo Alto history, even though you think of it as a place uh, correctly, we think of it as a place dominated by capital, always, always labor struggle throughout that whole history, even going back to the 19th century. So that's really important to remember that they can't win. They can never win, uh, ever, ever, ever win. The only way they can win is by fully destroying the world. Because uh, otherwise there's always the possibility for struggle and reversal. Yeah. And a second thing, I think we can take uh, pretty specific examples from the new left and the new left experience um, and I think we write off that history too often and we write false versions of that history, but seeing the California left within the frame of the anti-colonial struggle of the 20th century, which is how they saw themselves and is how the state saw them, mm -hmm. uh, opens up our understanding of that period. And we can really, instead of the caricatures that we have of you know hippies in the 70s, 60s, that invented the internet and neoliberalism or whatever uh, you might see in a movie. Uh, we have a vision of what struggle looks like and what people who work their way through different strategies and tactics of struggle and come to learn about the system that they're up against. And they put a lot of work in there doing that. And I think there are a bunch of stuff we can learn from their conclusions. Mm. And you also end the book with a very explicit call for land back in Stanford as well. Yeah, the the Mwekmo Ohlone are a politically constituted group of over 600 people. They have ancestral title to the land. Stanford recognizes their ancestral title to the land. In fact, if you go on, if you Google Stanford University land acknowledgement, which I encourage people to do, you'll find not only the Stanford land acknowledgement, which acknowledges the Mwekmo uh, ancestral relation to the territory, as well as the current Mwekma 
political leadership, they acknowledge that land acknowledgement itself is insufficient. And they have a link where it says, you know, here's where we're talking about land back and we should think about land back, uh, not just acknowledgement. Yeah. And Stanford has a lot of land. They've maintained uh, 8,000 acres of this very valuable land unsold since the 19th century. And that land belongs to somebody else. It belongs to people uh, who are living and working and struggling to live in their, their uh, ancestral territory. Yeah. And I think this is pretty low-hanging fruit in terms of reform uh, within the system that we can possibly imagine for Stanford to look at their situation and say, okay, here's how we can provide leadership to the world now, not by creating the new artificial intelligence technology or whatever, but by recognizing we as an institution that's related to settler colonial capitalist practices that exhaust the soil and the worker, yeah. we can turn over some of this territory. Yeah, which is like another kind of futurist project in a way. It's, it's, it's just a different driver, I suppose. But. Absolutely. Yeah, people sometimes think about that as looking back or res restoration or payback for past injustice. And obviously it's informed by the past, but it's absolutely a futuristic project. It's a future looking project. And in fact, it's the only futuristic project to me, because if you don't put land, you don't get land into the hands of people who are capable of caring for it responsibly, then there is no future to care for. Thank you to Malcolm for such a wonderful conversation and thank you for listening to Red Medicine. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by sharing this episode, giving the podcast a five-star review, or going over to the website and signing up for a £1 a month donation that will go towards covering the costs of running the podcast. Thanks again.